0: where we're looking at what are the pros and cons to AI, what kind of regulation do we need, because the use of that kind of technology is going to cross international boundaries. Therefore, one country doing their own thing isn't necessarily the right way. We need to be thinking about how to get it right. And there are risks and there are rewards. And I find that most of the comments are way too simplistic. There's an assumption that AI will save lots of effort, will therefore save lots of money, and will somehow magically increase the economy or the business output for people not necessarily
1: that's our guest on today's show James Tunbridge James is an intellectual property litigation partner and head of the legal services team at European IP firm Werner Shipley this episode forms part of our special series live at AIPPI where we took the podcast on the road to the AIPPI World Congress in Istanbul. We set up our podcast studio at the Bill Trader booth and our guests were interviewed by our head of marketing and podcast producer, Wendy Robertson. Welcome to Talking IP, a podcast for IP professionals featuring conversations that take you inside the professional lives and careers of global IP leaders and entrepreneurs. I hope you enjoy the show.
2: James Tunbridge, welcome to Talking IP. Thank you. So we're here at the lovely AIPPI conference in Istanbul. Yep. How's the conference been for you so far?
0: It's been good. I mean, it's it's always interesting because this is a, a conference that really moves around the world. And so you get a slightly different audience in, in every city and you get a slightly different audience continent to continent. And uh, I think Istanbul is a place that intrigues lots of us. So it's a great place to visit.
2: Yes, I think so too. Um, so one of the questions we love to ask our uh, our guest is, how did you get your start in the IP industry?
0: Oh, well, I was pushy and, and said I wanted to get involved. I mean, I think actually the bit that's mildly more amusing about how it all started was there was an element that was a bit of a dare. I was having a conversation with somebody and I was a, a university student. And we used to talk about things that we thought would be interesting to do. And this other person was already doing them and so I I said oh well then I will give it a go and what I was interested in at the time was trying to get a, a story in a book turned into a film so I went off and started researching the rights and then I realized that that was intellectual property that was copyright I thought that was quite interesting so I started contacting intellectual property lawyers and asking if I could get some experience with them and that was what sort of sent me on the path to where I am today.
2: That's so interesting. Every answer to that question is different. (laughs) (laughs) So you've obviously had a very storied career. Tell me about some of the highlights uh, along the way. Well, I think because
0: my qualification is as a barrister, um, when you're starting out, one of the things that you're looking to do is the opportunity to get into court, hopefully to do something interesting and maybe change the law in a good way and get a reported decision so when that started happening that was a real buzz Um, and then in the course of of my career I've been lucky to work on cases that have gone on appeal in the UK, in Canada and in overseas territories Um, and so that's kind of neat because I've been able to do cases in the UK House of Lords as was, in the UK Supreme Court there are some lawyers that would spend their whole careers and never do that and I've been lucky to do it several times and to do it in other countries as well.
2: Oh wow, that's amazing. So for a young person entering the IP industry today, what would be your advice for them?
0: Well, I think there are some fundamentals that aren't specifically unique to intellectual property about being willing to listen, being willing to put in effort to learn about what's going on in in the world. It's always impressive when you meet someone that already has some understanding about developments in software or, or whatever's happening at that time. And I think with intellectual property, we're looking for an unusual mix because particularly in the legal environment, a lot of people that go in that direction didn't necessarily like maths or science. They liked essay writing. But we are the weird world that science and maths and law and essay writing and language
2: all come together. Yes, it's interesting. I had someone say to me if you like you know you like words you like science but you like words you know so it's sort of you like writing as well as sort of you know science and stuff like that it's a, yeah. it's a I, interesting it's a real left brain right brain you, of thing. you remind me
0: of, of of an individual who's gone on to be quite successful and they were an engineer for a while and then they decided to come into this world and they knew that they had to start writing essays and things so uh, they asked some friends of theirs that had studied english to look at some essays that they wrote and their friends apparently said it would be good to use some verbs because having been an engineer for quite a long time equations were what they did
2: yes it's interesting isn't it when you've come from that real binary sort of you know binary decisions or binary answers it's either correct or not correct to enter a world where there's a bit more nuance
0: well there's there's probably quite a lot
2: of binary in in the
0: technological world that intellectual property works with but if you're trying to persuade people you need to give them reasons to go in the direction you want to go in and that probably does require a few more words.
2: <laughs> Absolutely, so um, based on your experience so far I suppose you know you're a senior leader in your organisation, what do you believe are the important characteristics of a, of a great leader in this industry? Well I think one of the things is that
0: we're here and we're talking about intellectual property but intellectual property has a number of different sort of core areas and I'm in one of them, not all of them. So. You know, what works and it's important for patent attorneys might be different to trademark attorneys, might be different to contractual advisors or dispute resolution people. I give advice on contracts, on regulation and I do dispute work. So for me, I would say that there's probably three things. A thoroughness of sort of really getting to understand what you're looking at. There's a lot of the world is able to operate with only a cursory understanding they don't have to get into the detail getting into the details really important particularly when the decisions that we might be taking could have very big consequences for our business they don't want you to to guess they want you to really look at it carefully um, i think the ability to explain is really important there's lots of different ways of doing that but you know the ability to sort of translate technical concepts into something that everyone in the room can understand is quite important and I would say the final thing is trying to be clear with those that you're working with so that everyone's very clear on where you're trying to get to. Because you're often working in a team, you need different people to do different things. If they're not, if they're not on the same page as the rest of you, you'll find somebody's going to do something that's a bit surprising.
2: Yeah, it's having that really clear vision and being able to communicate that uh, yeah. so everyone's rowing in the, in the same direction. So tell me more about your your firm, uh, Vendor Shipley, uh, what sets you apart and what from uh, other firms in your sort of country region?
0: Well, I mean, one of the things is that we're a British firm and the British system is still probably by the standards of the way that the rest of the world looks at us quite fragmented because you have different kinds of professionals. So you've got trademark attorneys, you've got patent attorneys, you may have design attorneys, you have solicitors, you have barristers. and. All of those individuals often operate quite separately, not under the same roof. And one of the things that's different about Werner Shipley is that we pulled everybody together. So it started life as a patent firm and it added trademark people. Then it started adding solicitors and barristers. And even the firms that are similar in background to us, generally have added solicitors maybe doing advisory work. They haven't generally added advocates. So trying to put everybody together under one roof, that makes us a little bit different. I'm not sure that there are more than two or three firms in the UK that have a similar kind of model. And then I think that the the people that were really instrumental in the way the firm has developed in the last 20 years actually slightly enjoyed taking a different approach. Uh, They didn't want to do things exactly
2: as they had seen it in firms they would come from. Oh, that's interesting. So do you have in a, a sort of a client success story or um, a success story that you can share that sort of illustrates that? Probably the ones that I could talk about would be the ones that went
0: into court, but quite often actually, one of the things that makes intellectual property interesting is that quite often you're dealing with a business and you might be having an argument in your corner of the world, but that argument ripples because that business is probably selling products and doing things in a number of countries and for whatever reason your client and the opposing uh, entity have sort of decided they're gonna see what happens in in your case and then do a global settlement. So quite often even the case that I'm involved in might not be the full picture, It might not be the full story. But I think that probably one of the most interesting things that I was involved in is I was involved in the very early cases that created standard essential patent and frown litigation. I represented an American company where they had invented the very earliest mobile phones. And we had a big argument with Nokia, who is now a client but wasn't back then. And there was a very interesting development in the early 2000s looking at the standards that require different devices to work together in order for us all to be able to make phone calls and how that could interplay and squeeze potential pattern arguments, which was a symptom of a change in the way that the economics functioned around phones at that time. Because in the 1980s, anyone that had a portable phone probably had like a car phone, it was quite a big thing, it was quite expensive. But when you started getting into the 90s and early 2000s, a lot of telephone companies wanted us all to have them. So they were putting us on different kinds of contracts where people weren't paying a lot of money up front. And so the whole licensing regime had to change. And being part of that and helping have a, an influence on where we went that started something that has become a significant area of litigation for 20 years It's kind of a unique thing to say I was a part of it right at the beginning.
2: That's really interesting. So, one of the great things about the IP industry is the opportunity to get together at these sort of conferences and connect and network with uh, global friends and colleagues. Is AIPPI a conference you attend each year and what has been your experience so far?
0: Well, I, mean, I think one of the first things is that although there are other kinds of uh, conferences for other areas of, of the law and professionals, intellectual property is positively unique in the sense that you actually need to know people in other parts of the world. Because as I was saying earlier, you might be working for a company that might be American headquartered, but they're selling goods all around the world. And you really need to know who to talk to, who to work with, because The law and the rights are territorial, but the nature of the business is very international. And I can't really think of many other areas that are quite the same. Maybe shipping a little bit, but most areas of the law, you know, you you do your thing in your country, someone does something in their country, and you don't necessarily need each other week in, week out in the way we do in our community. I think this conference is a really interesting one because it came from a very serious starting place, and it's managed to hang on to that. So, I mean, I spent over 12 years on the UK Council and I still take part in the sessions where we try and harmonize laws and bringing thousands of people from all around the world and putting us in a big room where we sit in our national groups and we discuss and we debate core topics and then we send that information to our governments in the hope that they think about it when they're writing new
2: treaties is a really unique thing that I don't think any other conference really does. AIPPI is a fantastic conference from that perspective. So in the context of, uh, I suppose, the latest industry trends, what are you sort of, what's some of the challenges or opportunities that you see on the horizon for either your clients or for the IP industry more broadly? Well, there's been a trend and a challenge for some years, not so
0: much in what I do, but in, in the management of rights, the management of portfolios of trademarks and patents and so on it is sadly sometimes seen as just a commodity type play and therefore price is key. And I can understand that from large companies that are spending, globally speaking, large amounts of money, but actually the decisions that you take about whether you have rights or don't have rights can have very serious consequences. I was doing some work for quite a large and well-known business that I can't name and they had opted not to pursue trademark control around the world and then they found some people using very similar names and wanted to stop them and found it was quite difficult to stop them. So that decision had a long-term consequence and I'm not sure that when the decision was taken they necessarily fully appreciated that. And I think that there's a challenge therefore in terms of the perception of value and how you offer service. I don't think there is a glorious future in a fixation on cost, although technology can sometimes reduce cost and that can be very good. I think that the future for people doing what I do is principally around being a trusted advisor and being a problem solver.
2: Yes, and I think, you know, it's, it's funny, you know, being that sort of trusted advisor to business because so many business decisions, you know, the tentacles go into, you know, has, has implications from a patent strategy and, you know, IP strategy perspective. Well,
0: just sort of taking it slightly out of the core of, of our world, but I'm reminded of an example of something I am aware of where a large government body decided they wanted to save money. So they had a conversation with a big IT company about digitizing a lot of data and and holding that data on servers and using the cloud. And it was entirely driven by an economic viewpoint. At the same time, in recent past, we've introduced new laws that are commonly known as the GDPR, the General Data Protection Regulation. And it was interesting that the procurement and finance people were not paying any attention to that. And so shortly after they had gone down that path, they found that they had challenges that the law didn't allow them to do what they were now planning to do. It's interesting, isn't it? <laughs> and I just think that that means that when anyone's making a decision, it's always helpful if you are lucky to reach out to advisors that can talk with reasonable understanding about different core areas of what's about to change in your business and your industry, because if you miss what's coming, it can be quite painful.
2: It can be devastating in some in some cases. So one of the common questions that I ask uh, people at the, for the podcast is what's your perspective on the role of technology in IP firm operations and the management of IP, firm, uh, IP protection more broadly? And what do you see on the horizon?
0: Well, I mean, I think technology has advantages and I don't know that it's any particular difference to our world than any other in that if you can reduce monotonous activity or you can get greater accuracy and you can save some costs and have more reliance on your systems, there's probably advantages there. And I think that that probably applies to lots of different businesses, not just ours. But I think that for businesses that are maintaining portfolios and using external advisors, technology can be very enabling to enable the ultimate owner of those rights to access and take a look and understand what's going on. You can work much more harmoniously with a technology interface and that I think is quite attractive, that's quite positive for the firm that's managing the portfolio and the ultimate client that wants to know what's going on.
2: Yeah, that's really interesting, isn't it? And to be, not to be able to send information that there is some sort of shared sort of place. Well,
0: it just gives them, I mean, they will probably still want reports of different types but they might just have a, a one-off query and they don't want to Trouble the lawyer and
2: ask the lawyer and get charged for that if they could access and have a look themselves. Yeah, that's really interesting. Okay, so there's a lot of talk in the industry around artificial intelligence. There's yep. sort of positives, negatives. The you know the early adopters are all excited. The laggards, you know, are sort of fearful of it. What's your perspective on the role of AI and the impact it will have on the IP industry? Well,
0: I think we have a bit of a mixed blessing at the moment. The the sort of the chat BT thing got everyone excited and the mainstream media started talking about it now the upside to that is it's got government and regulators and others realizing that actually they need to be thinking about it and planning for it now the downside is that everybody's banding around ai as if it's the magic answer to everything as if they know what it means quite often i find when people actually approach me and they say they've got ai what they've got is interesting software it's often not machine learning it's not genuine artificial intelligence And I have probably a slightly different take because next week, I will be taking part in the prime minister's first, so the UK prime minister is holding uh, an international meeting next week, which they hope will be the first of many. Probably it will go to other countries where we're looking at what are the pros and cons to AI? What kind of regulation do we need? Because the use of that kind of technology is gonna cross international boundaries. Therefore, one country doing their own thing isn't necessarily the right way. We need to be thinking about how to get it right. And there are risks and there are rewards. And I find that most of the comments are way too simplistic. There's an assumption that AI will save lots of effort, will therefore save lots of money and will somehow magically increase the economy or the business output for people. Not necessarily. And there are genuine regulatory issues. And I'm sort of trying to illustrate that with one example. One of the reasons why in the current data protection legislation, you cannot make decisions about a person that has a fundamental impact on them without the ability of a human to check it. Which is not to say that you can't have an algorithm or a computer program making a decision. But if the human being thinks the decision was wrong, you have a right to get it checked. and That's quite important because if I make something up and say that there's a Mr. Andrew Smith that lives on the street in a town somewhere in England. well, The odds are because Smith is a very common name there could be more than one Smith and somebody makes a mistake and they put the data in and there's a Mr. Smith that's got a really bad credit rating and a Mr. Smith that doesn't and they get them mixed up. The computer and the algorithm and the AI is not making a mistake. It's doing what it's designed to do. But the data input means that the outcomes are wrong. And I think we need to think about this so that we don't make mistakes. We only find advantages and we don't find that it has unintended consequences.
2: Yeah, it's interesting. I mean, I mean, obviously, people are putting stuff into ChatGPT and going, "Oh, all this stuff." And I said, "Have you actually verified that the information that's no. come out is correct?" Because often it gets stuff well, wrong. Well, actually,
0: images are an interesting point because there are some programs out there where you can type something in and say, "I want to see." I saw somebody do this. I want to see Meghan Markle begging outside Buckingham Palace, and the image looked very realistic. And if that image was sent to a newspaper. Historically speaking, they'd look at that and think, well, that's a genuine photo. There's a story here, but actually it's made up. So authenticity is a real issue. How are we going to control authenticity? How are we going to be sure that you know what you're reporting is true?
2: Yeah, the deep, the deep fakes and stuff like that are very scary when you sort of think about the political sort of consequences to... You well,
0: know, it can harm all sorts of people. It can harm people's reputation, it can harm businesses, it can harm politicians. There's all sorts of consequences. So we need to give it some thought. It's always hard to keep up with the pace of technology. I hope that, that because of the mainstream media interest, we'll actually get some good thinking about this now and that we might not be as far behind technology as we sometimes are.
2: Yeah, I mean, they're talking about, you know, how to be able to watermark and uh, and to be able to sort of, you know, see what is, you know, an AI-created content versus original content. So, um, yeah, it'll be interesting to see what the future holds. Yeah, and, and there are
0: pros and cons because the creative industries, we, we haven't, well, some people will say you could find the answer, but there hasn't been a public statement about the end of the writer's strike in the US and that the actors got involved as well because voice artists and others were concerned that if you took recordings of their voice, you could have an AI mimic their voice and produce new content and they don't get paid for that. And uh, that's their livelihood gone. And so understanding how creative industries work is important because there are big pros to this it's very expensive to assemble a crew to go out and reshoot something. So there might be some very good reasons why everyone's happy that they've been paid, they've done something, and in the post-production, we're making some changes, but we're using AI. That might be fine, but if you replace the creatives and that changes the, uh, the bargain that we have with writers, with actors, and so on, then we're gonna have to remunerate differently. We're gonna have a, a, a big shift. It could be a good shift, but it might not be if we don't think about it.
2: Yeah, well I mean even with writers it's not just voice, you know, that you can sort of take, say, I write me a something in the style of X yes. and then it just crawls all of the content of that original writer and can produce something that is it's not may not be a hundred percent, but it's it's not far off. So I know there's technology they're looking at now to sort of say that, you know, has your online content been crawled? By an AI to be able, there's an there's an ability to be able to to see that. Yes. So, um, so the original creator of that content, the original writer, can be you know if they can be paid a royalty or you know earn on the back of if an AI creates content, then it's like with music. If someone samples your music, yes. In a song, like you still get paid. The original writer of that well, music we've, gets we've paid. We've seen a lot of
0: arguments, a number of cases in the US and the UK in the last ten years, looking at songs and whether or not they've been created and and uh, whether or not they've been built on the on the copyright of others Um, and I think the the potential involvement of AI in that could make that much more complicated to Unpick and fairly remunerate.
2: Well, it's already happened. I think there was the, a song by Drake and The Weeknd that was completely created by an AI. So it was, a, and it was a great song. Yeah. So, but if Drake and The Weeknd uh, paid, you know, performance and um, publishing the the writing royalties on that song, then that's probably okay. But the, that, the the law is is not clear on. No.
0: Well, the the laws that we're dealing with. I mean, the patent laws in Europe, at least, largely come from the 1970s. Trademark law from the early 90s, uh, the copyright law from the 1980s, um, and in fact, I was at a very interesting conversation with Lord Justice Arnold from our Court of Appeal, who was looking at the fact that it's really past time that we updated our copyright law, and with all this development in technology, probably what he said is even more important.
2: No, absolutely. Absolutely. Well, James Tunbridge, it's been a very fascinating conversation. Thank you. Thank you for joining us on Talking IP. Pleasure.
1: Well, that's it for our special episode of Talking IP live at AIPPI. And thanks to our guest, James Tunbridge. Thank you for joining us and please reach out to connect with me on LinkedIn where we'll share updates on the release of each episode. Talking IP is brought to you by BillTrader, a fintech solution for IP firms designed to solve the cost and efficiency challenges of making and receiving payments to and from your foreign agents. To learn more, visit BillTrader.com.